0: Okay, let's kick off our Remembrance Day coverage today, or, uh, today and introduce my guest, Tim Laidler. He's the Executive Director of the Institute for Veterans Education and Transition. Uh, Tim is a veteran himself. He's committed to the cause of assisting Canada's war veterans. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hiya, Tim.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thanks a lot for some, taking some time today. Hey, thank you. Let's talk about your, uh, your service to Canada first, Tim. You served in the Canadian military and you did a tour in uh, Afghanistan, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I deployed in uh, 2008. So I was in Afghanistan in the Kandahar province for eight months. Um, my job there was convoy escort. So we'd be guarding supply convoys from the main airfield to all the different forward operating bases throughout the Kandahar province.
0: I'm really uh, I'm really amazed at the work you do to help veterans, and I know you've you've been very brave in talking about your own experience, right? with uh, you, after you got home to Canada, it was a pretty tough transition for you. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, for sure. yeah, I was um twenty two when I was in Afghanistan, and I'd been in the military since uh, I was actually sixteen years old. You can join the reserves. So for a lot of my adult life, I had known the military and military culture and made some like amazing friends uh, throughout that journey. Um, But, you know, serving in a high-stress environment and being in that military culture throughout all your training, it does leave you thinking about the world in a different way. You're not thinking about how to make money or you know, like in any other sort of maybe more civilian job would be. It's really about serving your country. It's giving you meaning, purpose, being on a mission. And coming out of that and going back to university is what I did. I went back to UBC right after my tour. It's a very different environment. You're surrounded by a bunch of people, many of them don't have worldly experience, and they have, you know, misperceptions about the military, misperceptions about our missions, you just have to kind of sit through classes with them, listen to them, complain about things you know aren't true, and uh, it just becomes very disconnecting at times.
0: Yeah, I mean, that probably includes a lot of people listening right now who have, we don't know the experience of, of what it's like to see war and combat up close, but when you served in Afghanistan, I mean, did you did you see and experience anything over there that you you're comfortable sharing with us that, you know, created some baggage for you?
1: Um, yeah, for sure. Like we we all kind of were trained, you're expecting to go in there and, um, you know, face the enemy and go into combat and that sort of thing. So that's what everyone kind of expects going into Afghanistan. What we what I didn't realize was the toll that we would witness it take on the civilians around us. So whenever there would be a suicide bomber attack or a roadside bomb targeting coalition forces, targeting Canadian soldiers, quite often it would kill numerous Afghan civilians along the way. And most of the time we had really good armor and vehicles there. So we were protected. Sometimes we weren't, but quite often it would take out a number of civilians and we would just sit there and watch these people who are trying their best to make their life happen. They're trying to run a little business on the side of the road and they have their kids and, and loved ones killed right in front of them, and it gets so little attention when we're over there. It just, it's just like another stat. It's this many, this dozens of Afghan civilians have been killed by the Taliban again, and it, life just keeps going on. So it was really hard for me to, to see that sort of suffering and see how little, how little chance they had to uh, take care of themselves.
0: Speaking of Tim Laidler, he's a Canadian veteran. He served Canada and Afghanistan. He works now to help veterans transition back to civilian life. So, Tim, when you got back to, to British Columbia, uh, did wh- what was that transition like for you? Was it uh, was it difficult? Did you have any like post-traumatic stress?
1: So, yeah, I think everybody um, who's been over there can relate to some of the symptoms of, you know, post-traumatic stress. Um, yeah. There's new terms going around now about moral injury, um, you know, feelings of guilt of friends that, that passed away over there, feelings of guilt that we should have done more. Those are sort of things that I experienced for sure. Um I think the the biggest problem though is you know is like you think I would start to ruminate back on some of those instances for sure, and, and that that can burn up a lot of energy in your mind, but the bigger problem is the, is the transition is finding a new mission once you're back home here in Canada. It's so hard to find something as fulfilling as serving in the military and taking part in those missions overseas, whether you know they had good and bad experiences, but it gave you a meaning, and that's what I had to recreate and, and spent a lot of years doing for myself, and I landed it firmly in the space of. Helping other veterans and helping them make a successful transition, and and become productive members of society over here again.
0: Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about your work on that? Like, how do you how do you help veterans when they get back home?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. The the first thing is, you know, we we traditionally call it like mental health support, but with the veterans, we just call it transition support. Um, we get together in groups and really help normalize some of their experiences. And what we'll say is. You know, if your heart starts racing when you hear a car backfire, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a very normal reaction to an abnormal experience you've been through in your life. So getting veterans together in groups and helping normalize their experiences is critical for the first line. From there, people may need more support. Some need less. Regardless, helping them make a successful career transition is a goal for a lot of the younger generation of veterans. And that's the work I do now at the University of British Columbia. We're, we're making UBC one of the first veteran-friendly campuses in Canada by helping veterans get admissions into the university and helping them be successful once they get in.
0: I think that's awesome. Uh, Tim Laidler, he's the Executive Director of the Institute for Veterans Education and Transition, speaking to us on Remembrance Day. What do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on this Remembrance Day, Tim? Like, it just occurred to me, like I said off the top, this is such a... An unusual Remembrance Day during COVID-19. None of the crowds would see at the cenotaphs across the country today because of the, because of the pandemic. Is veteran, is a, is Remembrance Day important for our veterans? Like when they see those crowds, when they see people coming together, standing in silence and tribute, I imagine that's a great comfort to veterans. And, and I guess today in some ways they won't have that. So it's a very different Remembrance Day, but you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very tough, this Remembrance Day. It's yeah. so important to the veterans, not only the veterans, but the veterans' families, that they see that the sacrifice that veteran made and the sacrifice their families made by having them gone away for so long. And often the families bear the brunt of some of the reactions veterans can have to the stress coming home. So I really do feel for a lot of the people that they take this moment to remind them of why they had to sacrifice so much. And uh, not having the in-person crowds is difficult. The, the one thing that um, I will say, just from me personally, is that oh. uh, this sort of lockdown and this life we're kind of living through right now, it does remind me of times of being overseas where there is days and days of end, uh, endless boredom. You don't have the freedoms to just go and get a coffee when you want. You're stuck in your tent. You can't move around. There is some feelings of familiarity of being, like living through all this COVID times to, to what parts of my military service are like. So, in that way, I sometimes feel closer when people say, wow, this really sucks. I say, yeah, it kind of reminds me about being in the Army.
0: <laughs> Tim, thank you for your service to Canada. I think it's awesome the work you're doing over there at UBC. And thanks for sharing your memories and thoughts today. Nope. Thank you for the time. You bet. Thank you. That is Tim Laidler. He's the executive director at the Institute for Veterans Education and Transition, kicking off our special Remembrance Day coverage here today on the show. Well, if you play the lottery, and I occasionally will buy a lottery ticket, especially if it's a pretty big jackpot. And you know when you go up to one of those little kiosks to check if it's a winner, there is always that little, just little moment of hesitation, like, my goodness, what if it actually happens? Never seems to happen for me. But somebody's got to win it, right? Someone's got to win the lottery. Did you hear about that big win of those four hospital workers there over at Royal Columbian Hospital in New West? They won 6 million. 6 million smackers. Four hospital workers. They've been buying lottery tickets together for about a year. And they hit the big one. They won $6 million. Teresa Choi, uh, one of the workers there, she said they bought the ticket at shoppers drug mart as she was back at her office at work checking if it was a winner they thought at first that they had won six thousand uh, dollars did a double check no it's six million six million they told the other two members of the group um that they'd won uh, everyone just thought they were kidding and it was a joke but it was no Joke. Six million split between the four of them. Well, by my math, that's 1.5 million each. That's a nice figure, I think. 1.5 million. That, that would be super nice. Nice to see some healthcare workers strike it big here too during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that's really cool. Okay. Think about this now. What if you actually won the big one? What if you actually hit the lottery? What would you do? How would you react? What would be the first thing you'd do? Well, let's talk about that now with my guest, Gregory Pang. He's a lawyer with Red Frame Law, and he is, as a specialty in advising lottery winners, the jackpot lawyer, they call him. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Gregory, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay. You've advised a lot of lottery winners over the years. What what kind of stories have you heard from people? Like, what what do people describe? What that's like? Is it like a jolt of electricity going through your body or something? When you when you see you've won the jackpot, how does that feel? I think, Mike. By the time
2: they get to me, the jolt um, may have worn off a little. So <laughs> by the time they talk to a lawyer, then it's the let's make. A plan. Let's yeah. be smart about this. Or it could. It has been. There have been other issues. Oh, there is something else that I have to deal with. So after the reality, not the reality, but the excitement um, is starting to wane a little bit. Then that's usually when I'm talking. So I don't catch them at when you hear in the commercials they're jumping up and down and screaming. I, I'm not there. I'm not at that point with them. I'm usually at some kind of. Uh, reasoning stage where we have to deal with something or we're we're planning uh, to take care of some kind of issue.
0: Okay, what would be your advice like if someone did win a big lotto prize? What would be the f- what do you think is the first thing that someone should do if they win? Other than throwing a massive party?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. N- no, no. <laughs> well, no not during not, COVID, not, no. During, do, not during pa- no. pandemic for sure. No, otherwise you can a Zoom party.
0: You can do a massive <laughs> Zoom party.
2: There there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the first thing I would recommend is, and this is something that is found on all the, the different regu- lottery regulator websites, uh, you know, being, for your listeners, that be the W, uh, sorry, not WCLC. That's my jurisdiction. The BCLC is right. to sign the ticket and keep it safe. Right. So that's the number one thing. Keep that ticket safe. The next thing you want to do is keep in mind, if you have to take time to get your affairs in order, to mark the date, the date, that uh, the draw date and you have one year to claim from there. So Mm -hmm. keep that in mind if you have to take time. And next, I would say that you have to stop, really stop and make a plan before you claim. One of the things you would want to do, it might be obvious to maybe me and you, is to talk to a financial planner, or a wealth manager, to see how you're going to use that money, how you're managing that money, how you're investing that money. And then next, and this is where someone, possibly me, it doesn't have to be me, but you may have certain certain circumstances where there may be um, legal issues your yeah. uh, due to your circumstances and you may need to see a lawyer uh, for example i've had a situation where i've had a client who has been going through they, 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 this person was in separation and planning in their pen with a pending divorce yeah, so cool. the question there becomes, okay, when did when was the lottery ticket purchased with what money and ultimately does my soon to be ex or maybe ex now at that, uh, at that time have a claim to my winnings. So there's those situations and other situations where you might want to speak with a lawyer.
0: And I've heard, next, I've, I've, yeah, I've, heard story, I've heard stories like that. Like, let's say, let's say a guy went wins the lottery and then uh, splits with his wife or his spouse before, before telling her that he won the lottery would mm-hmm. she? Would she have a claim? I mean, that would be a real sneaky thing to try and do. But would she have a claim to the money if he won the lottery while they while they were still together?
2: I think that that's a really good question, and that yeah. depends on the circumstances of the purchase. Yeah. Uh, what at what point in time is it like? When you say splits, were they already separated, or uh, was he planning to separate?
0: Oh. And
2: it also depends on the jurisdiction. You know, like oh, in terms of what is considered matrimonial property and what is um and I, this is not my area family law is not my area but it's uh, it, it boils down to okay what money was used when was it used and does it form part of matrimonial property in that split
0: i'm sure and, that big money can cause big problems for people in, in their families and and among friends too i mean it can be it can be really tricky what if you're in one of these sort of lottery pools like these workers were at, at uh, royal columbian hospital here in in new west if you're buying lottery tickets with people at work, do you have any advice for people doing that? Like just in case you do win one thing you can do, and I know they have it at the
2: WC on the WCLC website. I think they have one on the BCLC website. There are group form buying agreements that mm-hmm. you can, uh, that you can enter into with your group. And that helps protect uh, the, that everyone is in the group. They agree that we are part of this group buy, right. And we are and set out some rules around that. Look, so your $10, okay, let's say there's a pot of, not in a pot, but everyone contributes $10 a week. I mean, that's a little bit high, but it contributes $10 a week. So how many tickets does that buy? And what if you miss a week or something like that? Right, you know, right. So, And what if the ticket is drawn on that week? Is is the agreement explicit enough is that no no, is it a kind of a subscription thing? If I miss one, am I still qualifying in this group situation? Or is it if I miss that week and the t- ticket is drawn on that week on or sorry, or the ticket is purchased, the winning ticket is purchased on that week in which I missed my payment for my group buy subscription, if you will, then what then? So that's when fights can break
0: out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So good to have a real clear upfront understanding. Absolutely, around that. Yeah, to avoid any kind of disputes, disputes later. We just got a couple of minutes left here, Gregory. Uh, what's it like for for someone who wins a big a big lotto prize? Do you, for your clients, do you typically find that they get harassed by people like, you know, coming at them with fly by night business offers or or long lost relatives coming out of the woodwork looking for money? Does that kind of thing happen? Well, for
2: the ones I've been uh, dealing with. So far, in um, I guess the the Jackpot Lottery Marketing arm of uh, my practice, it, we've usually dealt with the, sort of these smaller wins, like kind of the Mac one million, max a million win t- level type. Um, but I have, and you only have to go so far as just doing a Google search. And find you know Powerball winners, you know the the yeah. multi hundreds of millions in the U.S., which are unimaginable uh, here in Canada, or some of the big Lotto Max winners, and just look at some stories out there of them being just everyone coming out of the woodwork that they you know their long lost cousin all of a sudden it wants to get re- reacquainted with them, charities just nonstop calling them, uh, and uh, unfortunately scammers, right? So th- th- those are some of the I guess down sides of winning and you just have to deal with if because the condition is that if you're going to claim this prize, you have to have your name, yes,
0: picture, and hometown published for everyone to see. Everyone knows who you are. I hope one of these days I'll have to be in the, the fortunate position of having to call you and hire you, Gregory. Thanks a lot for coming <laughs> on the show today. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, that is Gregory Pang. He's a lawyer with Red Frame Law. His website is jackpotlawyer.ca. He's got a specialty there in advising Watto winners. Congratulations to those four hospital workers there over at Royal Columbian Hospital in New West. Six million dollars richer after they hit the 649. Good for them. All right, you may have heard the exciting news about a COVID-19 vaccine developed by pharmaceutical company Pfizer. Early test results indicate the vaccine may be 90% effective, which would be fantastic. Now, there's still a long road in front of us during this pandemic, but that is certainly good news about a vaccine in the works that has that level of effectiveness. It certainly was good news for Dr. Bonnie Henry. Have a listen.
3: I think it's fantastic. We've been following all of the vaccine developments really, really closely. Um, We had some early uh, results from uh, the Moderna vaccine not that long ago. Um, This is this is preliminary results that have been released by Pfizer. So that's the caveat. We have not yet seen the data. Um, It has not been published publicly. But it is really positive news, and I'm quite excited about it.
0: Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there commenting on that Pfizer vaccine, uh, 90% effective in some of these early trials. Uh, She was asked, is that good enough, do you think, to get us through this uh, pandemic? Here she is again.
3: You know what, when we talk about vaccines against a a virus like this, 90% is really good. We know that if we get at least 50 or 60 percent protection, um, that that is going to make a major difference in stopping the spread and protecting people. And that's what we need to think about first. The vaccine is going to be in limited supply. We're not going to be able to give it to everybody at once, but we can give it to people who are more likely to have severe illness and protect them.
0: Okay. Let's talk about this vaccine and some of the other vaccines that are in the works with my guest. Dr. Horacio Bach. He is an adjunct professor at UBC in the division of infectious diseases. He is an expert in vaccines. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Bach, thanks for coming on.
4: Hello. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Okay. You bet. Thank you. When you hear about a vaccine that could be 90% effective, could you put that into some context? Like when you, that's really good, right? 90%.
4: Yeah, it's considered very high. Um, just to let you know, for example, the flu vaccine that we get yearly, we are talking about thirty to fifty percent. Ninety percent is very, very high.
0: Okay. Yeah, that is yeah. that that is certainly exciting to hear. I know that yeah. there are some some challenges though with this particular vaccine. Though, like how quickly could this vaccine be approved and then start being distributed to people?
4: Well, uh, first, uh, first needs to be approved by the FDA in the U.S., and um, they have what is called fast track now, so the approvals are going very fast compared to, you know, regular uh, validation or authorization. It may take more and more, they will ask more and more information and data, but since it's a global emergency, I guess that will be relatively fast.
0: Okay, and I know that um, this particular vaccine requires deep cold storage right like it has to be in very very low temperatures like deep freeze cold minus 70 degrees celsius at storage wow that's really cold
4: yes so um we do have in our labs basically minus 70 up to minus 80 uh, centigrades because uh, we need to keep a special material that low temperature um just to give an example the freezer that you have in your house or anywhere you know for domestic use is minus 20 degrees so we are talking about minus 70 and for that you need a big uh, machine basically to keep this temperature very very low Um, you have the alternative to use dry ice Uh, dry ice the temperature you can get is minus 78 so it's very similar the transportation of the vaccine can be an issue, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will be solved. That there is a lot of infrastructure that need to be um, developed. For example, so you have one airplane coming to YVR to distribute X number of millions of vaccines. So all these doses need to come at minus 70. Either you adapt your airplane to freezers minus 70, or you use dry ice for the transportation. The problem with dry ice is a compound that uh, the vapors are released from the dry ice and can be explosive at some point. That's the reason that the airplanes, they have a maximum number uh, of kilograms or pounds, as, as as you wish, that can be transported. For example, the size of a mid airplane like A320, the maximum allowed is 250 kilograms. So you cannot put more than that. So means that it's very limited. It's, it's not a lot, 250 kilograms. And uh, um, the company said that it's developing kind of suitcases that will be transported with dry ice. Uh, dry ice, what I read uh, recently, there recent is a shortage as well. Um, so it's something that you need to develop an infrastructure to produce more dry ice. But let's go back. So you receive your uh, 5 million doses in YBR, so you have to transfer this. Load to minus 70 degrees that you need to prepare. Either you store in the airport, or you have trucks that will move these doses to the distribution point. That they should have also minus minus 70 degrees. That relatively uh, can be relatively easy in Vancouver, but when you go to remote areas or rural areas where the infrastructure is not as we have here, right. that can be a problem. The company mentioned that uh, once it's taught, the, the vaccine can be refrigerated up to five days and still it's okay. So all these uh, issues need to be uh, based on protocols, very well um, written and followed, basically. So you need people that will make sure that it's followed. Otherwise, the vaccine is losing, the, say, the activity that you expect to have.
0: Wow. Okay. Sounds like some major logistical challenges there for sure as we look forward to this, this vaccine. My guess is Dr. Horacio Bach from, from UBC. He's a vaccine expert. Uh, this particular Pfizer vaccine, in addition to the required storage there at such deep freeze temperatures, I, I think I also read, I think that you, you need two shots of it, right?
4: That's correct. The yeah. short is at time zero, for the first time you inject that, and then the second one will be three weeks later. Right. means that if you receive 5 million, it's only for 2.5 point, two point million people. So right. it's always the double you have to transport. Wow. And I think it will be, a, I mean, prob, I, I hope it's not going to be a problem because you have to develop this infrastructure, but a big country as Canada will face a lot of problems when you have to you know, distribute or transport this vaccine to areas that is not easy to to get access. Right,
0: right. I know there are lots of different vaccines in development all around the world, including this one is certainly getting a lot of excitement because of that 90% effectiveness uh, shown in some of these early trials. But I was also reading about another one uh, being developed by Johnson & Johnson that uh, could require a lower... Uh, it also requires cold storage, but maybe not as cold as the as the Pfizer vaccine, and also might require just one shot instead of instead of two shots to be effective. So, uh, you know, are, are we are there multiple sort of levels of different vaccines being developed around the world so we have different options?
4: Yeah, that, that's that's uh, uh, the point. So basically, ideally, what you want is a refrigerator, uh, vaccine like a polio that is one drop and that's it, once. But um, I think at some point, uh, maybe the government is hesitating to develop all this infrastructure because maybe in three months from now, we will get or it will be announced that a new vaccine that you need minus 20 degrees or maybe refrigerated, it's enough. So the government or the health authority um, will be the one that will determine, okay, we go to that specific vaccine because we don't need all this infrastructure. So that's more like a decision of the health authorities, uh, based, you know, uh, 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 taking into consideration that all of them work at the same level. Of right. course, you will choose the one that is easier to distribute or transport. Yeah.
0: Okay. I just got a minute left here. Just one more, one more question for you. Sure. We often hear people who are they're anti-vaccines. They do not want to take a vaccine. They don't trust them. When people hear that this potential vaccine from Pfizer could be ninety percent effective, which is very exciting, do you think that that lowers their resistance and maybe more people be willing to take it if if they hear that, that it's 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 effective? It is going to protect them most likely.
4: Uh, great question. Yeah. Well, you know the um, uh, this ideo- uh, ideology of the uh, anti anti vaccine uh, that. In, in my opinion, you know, it's based on an early publication in 19, a, late 1980s about that a vaccine produces or causes autism that is yeah. completely unfunded. I think that uh, depends. You know, some people maybe they say now, okay, I am an anti-vaxxer, but I heard, uh, for example, someone in Vancouver Rhode Island that the, the, his kids basically got uh, measles in the past and he said, I was wrong because he didn't want to vaccinate and now in the family it happened so it may change something if you for example you know some of your relatives or uh, friends in, in in your circle they say okay you know what i i got the disease or oh i have been vaccinated and i didn't get so maybe it will change the, okay. the yeah the yeah the decision of these people yeah
0: i hope so thank you for coming on today thank you so much You bet. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Horacio Bach from UBC. He's an expert in vaccines. All right. Let's talk about the rent freeze in British Columbia. Now, rents have been frozen in B.C. since last March. It was in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. The government this week announced that rent freeze will be extended until July. No rent hikes allowed. And Premier John Horgan said the rent freeze could be extended even further in the new year. Here's Horgan.
1: This is an interim measure. This was the extent of the order that could be issued, uh, and we've done that. Uh, But in order to uh, have the freeze for the entire year of 2021, we'll have to extend that to September uh, 2021 and then have that three-month period of time for uh, landlords and tenants to figure out where they're going to be going on January 2022. Uh, but that that remains the plan. And this is, a, let's call it an interim measure to, to get to that goal. All
0: right, Premier John Horgan there, that rent freeze until July, no rent hikes allowed. Uh, and the rent freeze could be extended even further than that. Okay, this is good news for tenants, no rent hikes. Hey, if, if you're a renter, you've got to love that but for landlords, eh, not so much. On yesterday's show, I spoke to David Hutniak from Landlords BC, and he said they're worried about this rent freeze. Here's Hutniak.
5: We're concerned. Uh, You know, Mike, the reality is our costs are not frozen. Uh, Operating expenses continue to increase, and, and COVID has further contributed to that. You know, property taxes, are going up and there's some pretty scary indications of what they might uh, where they might end up in Vancouver, for example.
0: Okay, David Hutniak there from Landlords BC. All right, let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Mazdak Garignavez from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, the rent freeze until July. Uh, I imagine you guys are happy to hear that. So
6: we think that it's a good start, um, but unless this is uh, in conjunction with other solutions and policies, uh, we don't think that this is going to get renters through this crisis. So there's two things to say real quick about that. Uh, 15% of rental households across B.C., uh, about 90,000 households, couldn't pay full rent uh, over the pandemic and so that means that for them there's not a rent freeze this year actually there's an unprecedented increase uh, in the form of repayment plans and none of the parties had had a solution to that uh, in the election Uh, and second of all what we saw was that it's actually quite easy for the minister and for this government to take actions to protect renters it was really a a stroke of a pen so um, we need them to take additional measures reinstate the eviction ban, cancel rent debt and such uh, so that renters can get through this crisis.
0: Okay, let me just uh, dig, dig down a little deeper on a couple of those points. You mentioned the repayment plan. So how does that work? That's like for people who were unable to pay their rent at all. They were allowed to what sort of delay their rent, but now they've still got to pay it back. Is that right?
6: Yeah, exactly. So basically what the minister decided was that uh, essentially the, the landlording industry um, was to be recouped uh, for every single cent. And so, um, so the, the cost of the pandemic, essentially, the burden fell on the back of renters um, who didn't have income, who lost their jobs through no fault of their own. And during that time, when they weren't able to make full rent... Um, they, uh, they continue to build up rent debt. And uh, this repayment plan is, is not a solution that we were looking for. Um, and we think that we need to cancel the rent debt and um, you know, oh. provide supports where it's needed for, for very small landlords. Uh, but um, the burden shouldn't fall on the most vulnerable in society.
0: Okay. Let me ask you about the rent freeze now in place until July and possibly beyond that in the new year. The landlords are saying, like, obviously, if you're a renter, you got to love that with no rent hikes. But for a landlord, they're saying, well, look, what about our input costs? They're not frozen. They're continuing to go up. So insurance, repairs, uh, local property taxes, all of those going up. So they say it's not a fair deal for them. And, and when you take a look at, you know, the unemployment rate in British Columbia is around 8 9% right now, which, which is not great, ob- obviously, but there would be a lot of renters out there who have not been affected by this by this pandemic. They haven't lost their job. They haven't lost their income. So what, what do you say to the landlords when they say, look, this is uh, sort of tilted too far in the tenant's favor?
6: So... Um <clears throat> There's a couple of points to be made there. First of all, I do think that it's actually folks from across the income spectrum who are affected by uh, particularly rent that that was built up, um, but also just struggling. So um, we have one member who actually um, had an income that was too high in 2019 uh, to qualify for the temporary rental supplement. And this person, him and his wife, who were both uh, laid off, built up, you know, $6,000 in rent debt, which is essentially an extra 600 bucks per month on top of a rent of over $2,000. Um, and, you know, th- so the repayment plans are just unrealistic in terms of uh, ministers not understanding what it means to have several hundred dollars extra in month that you have to pay. Um, But in terms of costs, you know, landlords, you could make the argument that there are some legitimately small landlords, mom and pop uh, places who rent out a basement in their primary suite uh, so that they can continue making mortgages. Those people do uh, need help, but uh, we should not you know, twist it with, I know you had Landlord BC on your show yesterday. Yeah. Um, they, the vast majority of landlords that are represented that actually run rental housing are corporate landlords and individuals, wealthy individuals who have multiple properties.
0: Okay, speaking of Mazdaq, Gaurab Navez from the Vancouver Tenants Union, you mentioned the eviction ban. There, there was an eviction ban in place during the pandemic earlier in British Columbia. You could not be evicted. That has been lifted now, right? So landlords are now, once again, able to evict their tenants?
6: That's right. We actually, back in March, had to kind of fight tooth and nail to get that eviction ban. And then the minister decided to bring it back um, in, the, in the middle of a pandemic. You know, right now we have uh, cases that are just surging, particularly in Metro Vancouver, And so um, you really have to wonder with these with these health orders that says, you know, social gatherings are not safe. How is it safe for folks to then lose their homes, which is their first line of defense uh, when it comes to preventing sickness?
0: Right. So you want you want that eviction ban put back in place? We do.
6: We've been calling Uh for it for for a while um, for several reasons. One is the health reason. And second of all is that these evictions due to non-payment of rent really pose a huge risk to the affordable rental stock that exists right now. Um, In B.C., uh, evictions are actually financially incentivized because they can dodge rent controls. Once you get rid of a tenant, then you can jack up the rent to however much you want. And uh, that's uh, probably one of the reasons why organizations like Landlord B.C. wanted it back, um, because it's a oh. it's a huge business opportunity for okay.
0: them. Okay. Let me let me play this for you. I when uh, David Hutniak from Landlord BC was on the show yesterday, I asked him about the potential for uh the eviction ban to be put back in place as, as you guys would like to see. Here's what he told me.
5: Uh, we understand that, you know, there's some carryover here in terms of sort of some really uh you know uh uh you know, strong measures that were were necessary uh, be, during the early stages of the p- pandemic. This this is okay. where we're at. Uh, so we're we're going to try not to dwell on that. But really, I think at this point in time, we need to keep our economy open. We need to ensure that rental housing is uh, is strong and and vibrant for the future. And you know, some of those suggestions are just really, I think, uh, uh, you know, really not going to uh, help. Um, Renters and obviously it okay. would be extremely difficult for our sector.
0: Okay, I heard from a, a lot of landlords in the last couple of days saying that you know what, the tables have been so tilted in favor of the tenants that I, I'm just going to throw my hands up and I'm out of here. I'm just going to get out of out of the business of being a landlord. W- Mazdaq, wouldn't that if that happened, if a lot of landlords just said I'm not renting my place out anymore, I'm sick of it. Wouldn't that be bad for renters? Wouldn't that decrease the rental stock available out there?
6: I mean, I think that that's a problem that the government should think about and come up solutions for. I would personally like to see um, if that is the case, if there are rental buildings uh, where folks are saying, I want to sell, then that presents an opportunity for the provincial government, for example, to purchase those buildings and turn those uh, units into publicly owned, uh, non-market rental stock and keep keep the rents low on them. Um, but but in terms of these these measures being taken, you know the you kind of have to ask yourself why folks want to continue ev- evictions. You know, in other industries who are underwater, they would go to the government and ask for, you know, a bailout, a financial handout. Landlord industry is not doing that. They're arguing to, uh, to uh, continue taking homes away from renters. Okay. And really, that's the reason for that is it's a, it's a prime business opportunity to jack up rents. And so I okay. think that that's what we're dealing with.
0: Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. Mazdak Navez, he is from the Vancouver Tenants Union.